Are you willing to answer your call, regardless of what it might cost, in order to then be able to move all of us closer towards the oneness? Welcome to Contemplating Now, a podcast focused on the intersection of contemplation and social justice. Through interviews with scholars, mystics, and activists, this podcast will focus on contemplative spiritualities, direct relationship with issues of social justice. I'm your host, Cassidy Hall, a filmmaker, podcaster, pastor, and student, and I'm here to learn with you. Dr. Larita Coleman-Brown is Distinguished Professor Emerita of Psychology at Agnes Scott College in Decatur, Georgia. She studied psychology as an undergraduate at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and received her PhD in social psychology from Harvard University. Some of her publications include Praying Without Ceasing, Basking in the Loving Presence of God, and she's also published in the edited book Embodied Spirits, Spiritual Directors of Color Tell Their Stories. In 2008, she completed the spiritual guidance program at the Shalem Institute for Spiritual Formation. She is a Howard Thurman devotee and serves as a spiritual companion, director, writer, retreat leader, and speaker. Her first full-length book, When the Heart Speaks, Listen, Discovering Inner Wisdom, was released in January of 2019, which tells the story of her heart transplant and the dialogue within. Well, Larita, thank you so much for joining me today. It's so great to see you. Well, thank you. I, You know, I always love talking to you, Cassidy, and I'm just delighted that you invited me to be a part of your podcast. So one of the ways we like to begin is to begin kind of orienting ourselves around you and your experience. So how do you define contemplation and how do you define mysticism? I've studied contemplation in so many different contexts, but certainly within training for becoming a spiritual director, I find that my my sense of it now is that contemplation is really about trying to find ways to live in the presence of God. And, uh, you know, oftentimes I define it in terms of what is a contemplative, you know, what kind of person is that? And usually it is a person who is wanting to be aware of the presence of God all the time, um, but also knows that there are certain kinds of practices that they can engage in that will lead them to perhaps having that awareness more frequently. So taking time for silence, taking time for uh, solitude, getting away uh, from time to time, and then being outside, for me at least is sort of the three of the three S's, you know, um, the stillness that you find often when you are anywhere in nature. Um, It just seems to be like a vibrating um, energy kind of thing. And it reminds me quite a bit of, of being in the presence of God. But I think that it's really doing things, talking about things, that um, intentionally, in some ways, lead us to that place where we are feeling or being aware of the presence of God. Mysticism, to me, is something totally different. And I, I think people have mystical experiences all the time, but somehow or other, we tend to think about mysticism as something sort of mysterious and uh, uh, oftentimes, 
there are people who in some ways have negative views. They, you know, think of, of voodoo or, or something that is part of the occult or, you know, uh, bringing up uh, uh, spirits, etc. And I, I certainly, uh, just in learning the word early on, had, you know, had that sort of scary feeling, even though I was brought up in Catholic school and going to Catholic, you know, and, and not hearing anything about mysticism or mystics in the time in which I, you know, was a, a Roman Catholic. But uh, mysticism is just one of those kinds of things that happens. That is, and, and I think in my study of uh, Howard Thurman, he's helped me to sort of clarify it and, uh, uh, you know, uh, have a little bit more concise sense of it. But it's having a direct experience of God. Um, so you could be praying, you could be singing, you could be outside, but all of a sudden you have this experience of, I call it oneness, of unity. And so people have talked about it in different ways. Uh, Abraham Maslow, you know, in psychology, talks about peak experiences. I think he's talking about a mystical experience. Jer Jerry May, Gerald May, he calls it a unitive experience. And even Howard Thurman, you know, called it a religious experience. He was sort of saying, look, I think it's just a religious experience. Uh, you know, if you all want to call it a mystical experience, fine. But it's really having sort of this breakthrough of whatever it is that keeps us from being at one with God all the time, it just happens. Um, so, and I've had, I had those experiences as a young child, didn't know what it was. I remember once telling somebody that, you know, I felt the sun, the moon, and the trees all at once. And they were like, girl, you're crazy. I'm with you. But that's what it felt like to me, you know, as a child. I, I think we need to be a little bit more expansive about, you know, our definitions of what that is. I think, you know, in the past, it's been kind of restricted to people having visions, you know, and uh, stigmata or uh, some, the soul, you know, touching the God, all of that. I just, I would just want to sort of cut through that and say, my definition of mysticism is very different. That is beautiful. Yeah. And it strikes me that even my, my wrong perceptions of this idea that being a contemplative might make us more prone to having the mystical experience is still limiting. That's limiting of mysticism and of what the mystical experience can be. And who gets it, right? Because that's not that's not up to us. And it shows up when it shows up. Yes. And somehow or other, you know, as we sort of trace the evolution of, of mysticism, it seems as if what people used to be talking about as mysticism is now really spirituality. You know, like there's this just kind of natural progression. And that in some cases, people might call it a transcendent experience. I mean that you know it's it's not something that it, that is restricted to a small group of people living in a cloistered community, um, and it has happened as a result that they're praying or that they were they were singled out, but that children have mystical experiences, and certainly Howard Thurman was also one of those children. I think it's more common than it is uncommon that these transcendent experiences happen 
And we don't quite know how to explain it, except for that it was really nice. And we wish we could go back, but we can't make it happen again. <laughs> yeah. And, and also along with your, your definition of contemplation as solitude, uh, silence, and stillness, mysticism and a mystical encounter can happen in the middle of chaos it can happen in the middle of a crowd it can happen like you're saying for for a child at school right you know or maybe they're you know they're out somewhere at the ocean or i mean it, it could be anywhere and you're not trying to make it happen you can't make it happen it's just one of those things that happens to you there are people i would count too you know visions that I know uh, people have had dreams. I have a couple of friends who have dreams and it's like the divine has broken through and said, look, I need you, you know, I, I, want, to, I want to tell you something and it comes out in the dream. So I would hope that we will abandon this idea that mysticism happens only to special people uh, or, or, you know, or only special people are mystics, et cetera, and that it's some special club that, only a few people get invited to. But I think once you once you understand what it is and you are not afraid and that you allow those mystical experiences to happen when they do, it's such a lovely guide in some ways. It's like, oh, well, thank you for the visit. So many things in there I want to unpack, but I'll try to stay on track. So Thurman speaks a lot to things like the sound of the genuine within and also speaks to the inward sanctuary. First of all, what do you think he means by these kinds of things, tending to the inward sanctuary or listening for the sound of the genuine within? And how can we take this advice to tend to those things in the context of today's social justice movements, which take so much attention, time, and energy? Well, in some ways, I think Thurman would probably say, you need to tend to your inward sanctuary before you get out there, right? You need to do some, what I, I might call it house cleaning, so that you understand what you're doing and why you're doing it. Particularly in um, his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, partly what he's doing is saying to the disinherited, it's so important for you to protect your inward sanctuary because people are always going to uh, be uh, extending these or communicating these attributions about you that, that are just not true. And I think what happened with Thurman is that, and, I, and, I've, and I've had this experience myself, which is that you hit some place within you and you realize, oh, this is who I am. And when people come at you with something else, you're just like looking at them. Like, oh, you're talking to me? Coming into some knowledge, coming into some understanding of who you are inside, who you are as God created you. You know, do you really believe you're a holy child of God? Yeah, all, all of that, right? Um, but you, have, you do have to protect it because there are going to be people that are going to come at you with attacks. I would add that we also must begin to listen for what our call is in God's plan to restore the beloved creation. And I emphasize creation. You know, a lot of times people say community, but I emphasize creation both because Thurman believed it was all, including the animals and the plants and 
and the environment and you know, the air, all of that was part of God's beloved creation. You know, there's just this beautiful psychological stuff going on here, which is like, who's in control of you? So I think that has to get cleared up so that you can hear what is your role. You know, sometimes I think people uh, associate social action with protests in the streets. But as we know, with every movement, with every transformation, there are people in many roles in the civil rights movement. There were people cooking. There were people taking care of children. There were people writing articles. There were lawyers behind the scenes to bail people out and to file legal motions. Howard Thurman was really great on what I call inner authority. He knew what he was supposed to be doing. He was not supposed to be Martin Luther King Jr. <laughs> he was supposed to be Howard Thurman. And, uh, you know, so I, I often re- describe him as the spiritual director of the civil rights movement. That was his role. I think it's really important to do this, this, like I said, examining, examining of your inward sanctuary, your inward center, and to begin to be able to distinguish what it is that is truly you, what is genuine, and what it is that's somebody else's issue that they are projecting onto you, or they're trying to cajole you into doing something that they want you to do. Yeah, you know, my own experience of navigating the genuine within, not navigating the inward sanctuary. And the ways this kind of connects to our conversation about mysticism in that, in my experience, the genuine is often tethered to also that understanding of oneness. So it's almost like a mystical experience when I actually am revealed of what, of who I am and what I am. Well, I think any time that you say yes to God... You know what I mean? Uh, that you actually are having that that experience of oneness. It's like, oh, and I think the difficulty for most people is, you know, we we uh, live in such an individualistic culture, which is part of the mystical experience is to lose yourself, but you know, your your independent, autonomous self. But at the same time, I think that that sense of unity, that sense of connection is very familiar to our spirits, um, even though we may be fighting it at, at some point. But I think it's really difficult for people to, to surrender and say, okay, I'm, I'm going to stop trying to figure it out. I'm going to stop trying to plan. And I'm just going to try to move through my life guided by the spirit. That's just like real hard for a lot of people. Um, I think for me, as I've told many people, that, uh, you know, when I had a heart transplant uh, about 26 years ago, more than 26 years ago, I got thrown into the deep end of the trust surrender pool. Right? And so in many ways, the, the pandemic, I don't think, was as traumatic for me. And so I could stay grounded because I had done this, right? I had been in quarantine. I had I had awakened many days where I had no idea what was going to happen that day. Was I going to be in the hospital? Was I going to be at home? Was I going to have to get some special medication? Was I in rejection? Was I not? So you know, it was it, it it was like familiar territory to me, but I had been through it, so I knew that there was another side. By continuing to use the guidance that I learned when I had to go through that um, trauma, uh, helped me to then be one of those people who could stay grounded for other people 
they, they just weren't used to so much turbulence. In a lecture on mysticism and social action, which you informed me was originally titled Mysticism and Social Change, Thurman spoke a lot about the autonomy of the self, which is interesting in the context of this, you know, navigating being in an individualistic society alongside these, these things we're discussing. And in that he writes, or he said, the call to social action must never be an end in itself, but rather a means by which the individual sufferer can get access to his own altar. So my question is, what do you think he meant by that? You know, when he talks about the autonomy of the self, I think what he's talking about is not being a conformist in the sense of going along with everybody else just because everybody else is doing it. So, so you know, you may be with a group of people who kind of talk about taking social action, but you might also be hesitant if you think that people are going to think about you in a certain way. They might reject you. They might not be friends with you anymore. If you step out of sort of the party line, whether that be what your church's theology is or or, you know, uh, take a stand on a particular political or social issue. So I think in part what he's saying is that you can't really get to, you know, he's got this idea that there is an altar within all of us, um, you know, sort of where God resides. And it's really hard to get to that place if you don't have the courage, if you don't have the strength to do what you're called to do. And, and so many people sometimes hesitate because, again, it might upset the total apple cart of their life, right? Where they stand, their reputation, um, you know, their economic situation, all those kinds of things. And so it's really tough to be able to step out of that and say, look, this is not, this is wrong. So, you know, I mean, it's like, where are those people who particularly during Thurman's time, were willing to step up and say, segregation in churches is wrong. This whole system is wrong. Because, you know, there was a lot of punishment for anybody who stepped out of that, right? Um, and But he's saying, if you're not going to get to that union with God unless you're willing to answer the call. Um, and in that way, you're being an autonomous self. You're sort of you know, stepping out of the group, um, think, if you will, uh, deciding that you're going to walk a different path. That, that, at least that's been my sense of what he's trying to say in, in those remarks. Um, because he says the call to social action must never be an end in itself. It's always, you know, always about are you willing to answer your call, regardless of what it might cost you, in order to then be able to move all of us closer towards the oneness? Yeah, that's a big, that's a big call of the spirit. That's, that is the call of the spirit. I love that you kind of informally name Thurman as the spiritual director of the civil rights movement. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit to yeah, Thurman's relationship to that movement and how you see that role unfolding for him. So Thurman had very had a, a number of, I call them 
holy coincidences or sacred synchronicities, divine intervention, whatever way, whatever things you want to call it, in his life. Because I think he did accept that call and he he, you know, kept going with the spirit wherever it was, you know, taking him, sometimes reluctantly, but and so in 19 uh, probably around 34-ish. He was asked to lead a pilgrimage to India. You know, initially he was not particularly interested in going because he certainly did not want to be evangelizing for Christianity. He was very ambivalent about traditional Christianity because it's like sort of why why am I promoting a religion that won't even allow me to sit next to another Christian in a church? And why hasn't this why hasn't this religion addressed some of these basic social issues. I mean, we could get into a whole discussion about, you know, when Christianity got co-opted for the state or whatever, right? But that's beside itself. We're just dealing with the reality of it. And, um, you know, initially they didn't want to invite his wife, Sue Bailey Thurman, who was just an amazing woman in and of herself. Um, and he was being invited by a, a group that was pretty much um, similar to the YMCA in the United States, but the sort of, you know, in India. And uh, this guy, Raleigh Ram, uh, really wanted him to come. He wanted some darker-skinned people to come and sort of represent Christianity because at the time, you know, the people in that area of the world were not interested in converting to the colonizer's religion. (laughs) So he thought, well, maybe if they see some people that look kind of like us, they might change their minds. It ended up that he finally... And I should say, prior to many years earlier, Thurman actually participated in uh, the YMCA when he was in high school because they had a lot of programs for the uplifting of of young colored boys or men kind of thing. And there was some ambivalence by many people that were participating in that because they wanted to have segregated branches of the YMCA. So... So, you know, we sort of run into these issues, you know, everywhere. But nonetheless, so in, in uh, the summer, not summer, fall of 1935, he and uh, Sue Bailey Thurman, um, Edward and Fanola Carroll, boarded the ship to, um, you know, South Asia, Burma, Ceylon, all of these different countries. And they actually spent six months giving talks about a variety of issues, not necessarily focused on Christianity, but, you know, sort of, you know, American Negroes in education, and Sue Bailey Thurman gave lectures on Negro women, because this is the terms that they were using at that time. They also, uh, he also had a chance to meet Tagore, the, the you know, Indian poet, um, spent a little time with him, but they really wanted to be Gandhi. And so they had some difficulties. I think initially Gandhi was sick, and then they were sick, and but about Maybe a week or maybe a week or two before they were to leave to come back to the United States, Thurman was on his way to the post office to send a telegram, and he saw this guy with a Gandhi cap on, and they kind of looked at each other and then turned around, and he had come, you know, to bring a, a telegram from Gandhi. Nonetheless, they got a chance to meet, and they met for three hours um, and had a, a long conversation. Um, there's a lovely book called. Vision of Visions of a New World, Howard Thurman's Pilgrimage to India. And, and so what we now understand, which I never knew for many years, is that 
It was really Thurman who brought the ideas of nonviolence and civil disobedience from Gandhi to the United States. Um, and Gandhi even said after that three-hour meeting that he he thought it was probably going to be through the American Negro that this message of nonviolence and civil disobedience would be brought to the world. Thurman came back with uh, this idea, and I think he incorporated some of that in Jesus and the Disinherited, which actually became the blueprint for the civil rights movement in some ways. That is the inspiration. So there were so many people that had um, that were later leaders in that that basically read that book and got excited. So Martin Luther King Jr. was one of them. James Lawson was one of them. Jesse Jackson was one of them. There were lots of people, you know, who were inspired by that. But Thurman did uh, cross paths, by the way, with King in a variety of different ways. First, another providential occurrence, uh, Sue Bailey Thurman and Martin Luther King's mother, Alberta King, her name was not King before, um, Williams, were roommates at Spelman Seminary in high school. It was a high school at the time. And so, uh, you know, they had known each other for a very long time. And then in the newest book, Against the Hounds of Hell, written by Peter Eisenstadt, who's a Thurman um, scholar and uh, historian, he, he said that after the, the Thurmans came back from India, they had dinner with the kings. Uh, Martin Luther King probably was about seven years old at the time and probably, you know, overheard much of this conversation. But it really wasn't until he read Jesus and the Disinherited that I think he really got, you know, inspired, like, well, he, this, we can use this as a way to understand what our, our role is. And then, of course, uh, King and uh, Thurman crossed paths at Boston University for about a year as King was finishing up his dissertation work. They met a little bit uh, over sports, uh, again, you know, I'm sure at the urging of, you know, Alberta King and, you know, just get these people together. King also spent a lot of time listening and uh, to Thurman's sermons in the Marsh Chapel, to copious notes. And then one final thing is that uh, King was stabbed by a mentally ill woman in 1958. And Thurman writes, you know, that he had this visitation or this vision um, that he needed to go there. And so he actually went to um, the hospital and talked to King and basically said to him, you know, this movement that you've started, I think it's kind of taken on a life of its own. And uh, I would suggest that you take some time off or some silence and solitude so that you can discern what your role is going to be in this movement. There are many people who write in various ways about coming to Thurman as kind of like the spiritual advisor. So Vincent Harding talked, writes about it, Vernon Jordan, as well as Jesse Jackson, Otis T. Moss II, Polly Marshall in her, her work also says that she used to consult Thurman for spiritual guidance. So there were a number of people. Uh, Marion Wright Edelman was, you know, influenced by him, and all the amazing people that went through uh, Boston University. Barbara Jordan was a person who used to go to his sermons. So he would basically be the person um, holding the spiritual space for these people as they, you know, came in and out and asking the questions 
that a good spiritual director would ask, like, well, so, you know, how are you feeling about this? And what do you feel guided to do next? So, you know, asking sort of the deeper questions. I mean, it's not, it wasn't just about let's get angry and go out in the street, but, you know, really, you know, helping people to understand that this might be, in fact, you know, a, a godly matter that, you know, that there's some spiritual reason for their being uh, as part, you know, part of this, this movement. Yeah. I love that the, it was the women and their family that ultimately got them together in his biography with head and heart. Thurman talks about his vision for the church, which I really always love this quote. Um, but he notes that it was his conviction and determination that the church would be a resource for activists to me, it was important that the individual who is in the thick of the struggle for social change would be able to find renewal and fresh courage in the spiritual resources of the church. And it strikes me that he lived his life like that. He lived his life as a resource for activists and a place for people to find fresh courage. Yes. Yes. I, and I think that's so important, a place for finding fresh courage, because in my experience, particularly as a spiritual director companion, but also as a friend, people are weary. They are worn out and worn down. And I think in part, if you don't have that spiritual undergirding, if you don't have a sanctuary, if you don't have a place where you can just bask in the renewal of being in God's divine presence, then you you are going to, you know, fall apart. I mean, you're going to burn out. And I've been been trying to help young, particularly African-American contemplatives, um, as well as activists to understand that it's, it's more than, you know, you've seen an injustice and you've got to go do something about it. It's got to be deeper. Because if it, if it isn't deeper, you are going to burn out quickly. Um, and that it is going in for those moments of contemplation or contemplative prayer, centering prayer, whatever you want to call it, where your spirit is renewed. And then you get, that's where you get the courage to be able to uh, stand up and say or do whatever it is that needs to be done without fear, right? You know, that's where you get the strength to be able to, you know, have the stamina to stay as long as you need to stay or stay up as long as you need to stay up. But it's got to have something other than just passion and fire, because as we know, you know, that just burns quickly. Um, but it's got to be deeply rooted into, in something else. So I like to end by asking one last question, and that is, who is someone or some people that embody mysticism for you or to you? I wish I had more time to think about this. I think about all the people that, you know, I've read along the way. Um, and I must admit that it really wasn't until I stepped into the life and work of Howard Thurman that I felt like somebody was speaking to me, right? I mean, I read about a lot of people and they were talking, right? But in terms of having somebody speak to me, <laughs> like, I, I, I know you, I know what you're going through. Here's my take on it. He was probably the, the first person. But I think, um, uh, I think about Harriet Tubman. I mean, here's a mystic involved in social action. And it doesn't really matter 
how it happened. You know, some people say, well, you know, she had a brain injury. Okay, well, you know, people talk about so many mystics as probably having some form of psychopathology, right? So, you know, let's talk about courage, right? I mean, where do you get the courage and, and the guidance, you know, so that you don't get captured and killed? Just incredible. So I'm very inspired by her. Um, and what she did and how it happened. But if we bring, if I bring myself to modern day, um, I think about uh, Barbara Holmes. I think she's just an amazing person. And, and, you know, I've listened to a few of her presentations and it's like, she's in the deep waters. I always think about mystics as it's moving in the deep waters, right? They're moving in the deep waters. And so is Richard Rohr. He was someone that I read early on and had a chance to meet once here in Atlanta, but just, I believe, following that call. But I, you know, I have some people that are sort of, that we probably wouldn't define as mystics, like Lin-Manuel Miranda. I have him in that category because after I saw uh, Hamilton, I thought, who could come up, who could do this, right? I mean, this is just beyond, it's like when you're in the presence of genius or, or creativity at that level, it's like, it was like a divine experience to just be part of, to just watch the production, right? I think about uh, Toni Morrison and some of the words and things that she came up with. Um, August Wilson as a playwright, he's, he was another one. Those people that clearly, they are connecting with the divine in some way. Are, are people that, you know, there's a, a woman many years ago wrote a book called Ordinary Mystics, you know, Marcia Scimitar. And, you know, now I just want to cross out the, the ordinary, right? I mean, because they are mystics. They just don't happen to emerge from religious communities. And I'm hoping that, as I said before, we can move beyond that kind of definition of, of a mystic not only demystify the word, but make it one that is not associated with something negative. As I said earlier, everybody has different roles. And so let's not confuse activism or social action as one thing. Art can be activism. Plays can be activism. And poetry. Look at Amanda Gorman. What the activism is about is is provoking people, is, you know, is waking them up to paying attention to what's going on around them. Yeah, and I love that you named so many artists too. And and that idea of deep waters, deep waters. And I remember being with you at the Wild Goose Festival at Wisdom Camp and you said to me, spirit gets what spirit wants, so we might as well listen. And that was actually a time in my life when, when I needed to listen, I needed to rest. Yeah, so I see that that mysticism alive in your life, and I'm so grateful for you and your work and appreciate you taking the time to, to be with me. Of course, it's always a joy to be with you, Cassidy. Great conversations, and, and I think our love for this work is part of our calling. Thanks for taking the time to listen to today's episode. To support this work and get sneak peeks of new episodes, join me at patreon.com slash Cassidy Hall. The podcast is created and edited by me, Cassidy Hall. Today's episode features the song Trapezoid Instrumental by Emily Sankofa, which she has generously allowed us to use. 
Please find this song and more from Emily Sankofa on your favorite streaming platform like Spotify or by visiting e-sankofa.com. The podcast is created in partnership with The Christian Century, a progressive ecumenical magazine based in Chicago. The podcast is also created in partnership with Enfleshed, an organization focused on spiritual nourishment for collective liberation. For liturgical resources, head over to enfleshed.com.